0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Primate Cast. I'm your host, Andrew McIntosh, and with me is summer intern Sophie Bernstein.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: Today is July the 31st, 2014, as we continue with this, the fifth and final installment of our five part podcast series taken from coverage of the Japan Society for Animal Psychology annual conference that happened on July 19th through 21st of this year.
1: Right now we're going to be talking with Dr. Raman Sukumar of the Center for Ecological Sciences and the Indian Institute of Science.
0: It's a little bit of a different interview because uh, Dr. Sukumar's main research interests are surrounding human-elephant conflict in India, but also more globally. And so he'll be talking a lot about uh, issues surrounding elephant conservation and some of the the main areas of conflict between elephants and humans, um, particularly with a focus on India. But more generally, he's also interested not only in uh, elephant conservation and ecology, but also generally tropical forest ecology, and he will bring in climate change into this conversation.
1: But don't worry, towards the end of this talk, we're going to get back to the theme of the conference and looking at how cognition can give some clues into how to uh, mitigate this conflict between elephants and humans. So now let's hear about conservation of elephants.
2: Yeah, one of the major challenges that uh, we face with the conservation of Asian elephants is uh, conflicts between elephants and people over agriculture. You have elephants coming out from the forest into the sort of human-dominated landscapes, uh, the damaged crops, uh, they sometimes kill people. And this is a problem that seems to be growing over the years. Uh, and ultimately, if conservation in uh, uh, developing countries with uh, large human populations, you know, and uh, relatively fragmented forests, if that has to succeed, it, elephants have to be accepted by local people. And uh, therefore, uh, it is imperative that we find solutions to minimizing elephant-human conflicts Mm -hmm. if we are to conserve the elephant. And here Dr. Sukumar goes on to tell us the key factors involved in this conflict. Mainly elephants uh, are in conflict with people over agriculture. Uh, There is a lot of cultivation, not just along the boundaries of uh, forests and human settlement, but also... Uh, within forest areas where you have maybe, you know, small villages, large villages, you know, settlements of different types. All this is very historical because, you know, India has been pop- populated for a very long time and people have moved into areas which are suitable for agriculture and for settlement. And uh, This is, uh, uh, you know, there are historical references to elephants coming out and raiding crops. This is not a new problem uh, that has just occurred recently. But, um, Elephants come out and damage crops. Uh, These are crops such as uh, cereals like uh, paddy and, uh, you know, uh, 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 millets, uh, finger millets, uh, maize, Uh, sugarcane is grown in a lot of areas today, you know, banana. In fact, uh, a number of different types of crops that we cultivate uh, as food is also very attractive towards elephants. Um, Elephants also sometimes uh, uh, damage houses. Especially when people have uh, stored uh, grain, or salt, or sometimes uh, locally brewed liquor, elephants find liquor very attractive, and they are usually attracted by the smell of liquor. I suspect, <laughs> so they typically target uh, houses which are usually very flimsy kind of dwellings in rural, rural areas that uh, people live in, and um, it's very easy for an elephant to break the wall of a of a, 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 a hut inside a you know, in a, in a small village inside the forest. And uh, sometimes people get killed in the process. And usually when farmers try to chase the elephants away, uh, elephants can turn aggressive towards people. Um, you know, almost uh, more than 30 years ago, when I began my studies of elephants, on average in a year, about um, 150 people were being killed by wild elephants uh, in India alone. And uh, today, the Uh, Just for you to understand the magnitude of the problem, uh, the number of people being killed each year is about 500 people. So the problem has grown more than threefold. So you have damage to crops, you have damage to property, and you have uh, people being directly killed by elephants. And um, so that's the nature of the the conflict, essentially. Now, what I thought was really interesting about Dr. Sukumar's talk
0: uh, at this conference, usually when we think about conservation issues in in human-animal wildlife conflict, it's often because of the encroachment and issues with habitat loss and fragmentation, the animals being driven out of their their native habitats. But at the same time, you mentioned other factors that actually attract animals outside, uh, even in protected, well-protected, or even pristine habitats.
1: So he calls this the push-and-pull factor. So certain things that are um, pushing the elephants out as Andrew mentioned, and other factors such as invasive species, but also pulling the elephants back to these human uh, habitats, things that are really attractive to the elephants, and we'll hear about that now.
2: You know, all across Asia, if you look at uh, the range of the elephant, uh, I've estimated that elephants today occupy only about 6 percent of the original range that they had about five or six thousand years ago. Uh, well, this has uh, been a process of uh, gradually humans uh, eating into elephant's habitat, uh, fragmenting the habitat, and uh, obviously reducing the habitat to, to unsustainable levels for maintaining elephant populations in many places. Uh, this is a process that is uh, still ongoing in, uh, at different rates in different countries and different regions. Um, so for instance in uh, countries like uh, Indonesia there's been large-scale expansion of uh, oil palm plantation into tropical rainforest and this has greatly reduced uh, the habitat available to elephants. Um, In other countries uh, or other regions, uh, like in southern India for instance, it's not so much habitat loss. Habitat has been lost historically, but today over the last uh, few decades, uh, there is no significant loss of habitat, although the threat of habitat fragmentation is still there. But other parts of India, like uh, central India, you have mining with an elephant habitat. So their habitat has certainly been lost. Uh, The situation is quite complex if you really look at the reasons for the decline of the elephant. Uh, In Southeast Asia, for instance, elephants have been hunted heavily in recent decades. Uh, They have been killed for for meat and other products, uh, ivory to a certain extent, and therefore elephants have disappeared. Uh, In uh, Northeast India, it has been a combination of loss of habitat as well as hunting and illegal capture of elephants. But uh, the problem of elephant-human conflict still exists in places like southern India where um, there is no perceptible significant loss of habitat in recent times. This is because ironically with better protection measures for the elephants, with better conservation of elephants, the elephant populations are increasing. And uh, therefore, you have the situation where elephants are now coming out of the forest areas. Uh, there's too much of very high density elephant populations. So elephants are coming out of forest areas and they're spilling over, over into, the, into human uh, dominated landscapes. Uh, so this is what I call both the push and the pull factor. Uh, the push factor is a, comp- a number of different factors operating within elephant habitats. So you can have, in principle, you can have ecological degradation of the habitat. So there are people going into the forest, they are perhaps cutting trees, they are transforming the habitat. Habitats are being, natural habitats are being invaded by uh, plants like Lantana camara, which is a highly invasive species, uh, perhaps reducing the amount of forage available for elephants within the natural habitat. Then you have increasing populations, you have very high population density, so there could be increasing competition among elephants. So all these tend to push elephants out, out of the forest. Um, and the pull factors are the attraction of, of uh, human landscapes for elephants, our production landscapes for elephants. Because uh, with better irrigation, especially with groundwater being uh, tapped for agriculture in, um, in recent decades, uh, people are growing crops, uh, you know, are growing more crop, they're growing crops for longer time periods. The crops are very attractive. These are very highly productive landscapes for agriculture outside the forest. And therefore, once elephants encounter these, uh, you know, these lands, um, where attractive sugarcane or paddy is grown, um, not only these areas are very productive for elephants, but also that the crops that we cultivate are more uh, tasty, they are more nutritious. Uh, They have higher levels of nutrients like protein and calcium and sodium and uh, therefore some elephants now become addicted to these landscapes. They find that they are able to make a better living outside forest, natural forest areas. So we have this ironic situation that if you look at um, the condition of elephants inside national parks, which are uh, fairly intact large areas of forest you find that elephants are in poorer body condition than elephants that have come out of the forest and elephants are found in these uh, agricultural areas. So you have this very complex kind of situation where elephant-human conflicts are being promoted by a combination of different factors, habitat loss and fragmentation, uh, habitat degradation in some cases, but at the same time, uh, you know, uh, humans creating uh, landscapes that have, you know, agricultural crops that have higher levels of productivity, um, that have uh, better water sources, uh, and so on, that elephants find very, very attractive.
1: So Dr. Sukumar has given us a clear explanation of what these different factors are in terms of elephant conservation. But now he's going to give us some solutions in terms of how to work out this balancing act between habitat and carrying capacity of elephants.
2: In fact, I think one of the dilemmas that we face today is that um, you know, what do you do? How do you manage uh, conflicts in situations where you have these very dense elephant populations? And the elephants are very clearly coming out and almost totally residing in areas where elephants have not been there in maybe 50 or 100 years. Um, they're, you know, they're found in areas where you have a mosaic of, uh, uh, you know, paddy fields and coffee plantations and settlements and villages and, you know, and people have to move amidst these uh, wild, wild elephants there. Um, and therefore, uh, one option of uh, you know is to actually remove these elephants from those areas, and then the question arises as to what do you do with these wild elephants that you remove. One option is to put them back in some uh, some forest area, uh, a natural so-called natural habitat. But the big question is, would that succeed? Because some experiments in the past in countries like Sri Lanka, and also in India, with bull elephants being relocated in other areas, suggest that these would fail because uh, elephants tend to go back to the places where they have been captured from. Uh, but I think on the other hand, we need to do these experiments, uh, simply because you can't take all wild elephants back into captivity, as these elephants go out into the into human landscapes, you can't take all of them into captivity. But on the other hand, I think there might be no other option. Uh, but if elephants that have killed people, elephants that are likely to again, you know, come into conflict and make a uh, uh, you know impact on the lives of people, you may have to take some elephants into captivity. Uh, so you can have different kinds of strategies. Um, at the same time, I think now uh, the government is beginning to experiment with barriers. Uh, in the past what they did was they dug uh, ditches along the boundary of forest and cultivation. But ditches uh, very uh, rarely work uh, well because uh, you know except, except perhaps in very dry areas. Because come the rains, the monsoon and uh, the soil gets washed into the ditches and they become disused over time and therefore the elephants can very easily cross over. Electric fences, these are high voltage electric fences uh, which give a pulsed current of a millisecond duration and uh, these, are, these are very safe. Uh, they kind of give a shock to the elephant but they do not kill an elephant. These are being tried on a large scale. But the key to the success of an electric fence is um, the maintenance of the fence. And unless uh, you have a situation where both the government and the local communities, they cooperate in maintaining the fence, the elephant uh, somehow finds a weak point in the fence and it's able to break through. And Elephants learn very quickly. You know, after all, they're very intelligent creatures. You know, the bull elephants with tusks, they learn that tusks are poor conductors. So they use the tusks to
1: uh,
2: poke the insulators or to break a wire. The tuskless bulls learn that the soles of their feet are poor conductors, so they rear up on their hind legs and they bring their forelegs legs down on the wires and and you know break the wires. And you know you won't believe this, but you know the f- even female elephants are very clever. You know they learn uh, they walk along the fence They sometimes uh, break a branch and put it on the fence. Uh, they push a tree over the fence and uh, then they break the wires. Or sometimes, you know, it's unbelievable that they push the young elephants, they learn that the, sh- the shock itself is not lethal to an elephant. So they push the young, yeah, younger elephant onto the fence that quickly breaks <laughs> the wire, and, you know, the, and then the sort of. So the fence. shock is not so bad, but it's better if someone else, yeah. <laughs> if someone else takes a shock rather than yourself. You know? wow. So they use all these different means to uh, kind of break through, through these fences. More recently, uh, in the state of Karnataka in southern India, where I come from, the government is experimenting with mechanical barriers. So these are sort of physical fences that hopefully the elephants will not break. These are using, uh, you know, this unused, uh, disused uh, rolling stock of uh, where the trains, uh, you know, the railway lines. And they have just begun to experiment with these to see if the elephants could be kept inside the forest.
0: Yeah, so as we all know, it, when you have these things, these ideas on paper for solutions to mitigate these human-animal conflicts, um, it always looks so simple. But obviously, in practice, there are so many issues that go in, and it, so rarely they work, um, or at least not to the, the full potential or the expectations that we had. Um, so there's always a, a constant struggle to think of new ways to come up and try and balance these, these things.
1: And knowing that elephants are cognitively complex animals, We asked Dr. Sukumar to tell us um, how they can use that to their benefit.
2: I think the directions are uh, as follows. You know, you essentially have to condition these elephants to avoid human settlements and crop fields. And how do you do it? You know, elephants are getting uh, cues uh, about the attractiveness of agricultural crops, perhaps through smell and through taste. So are there ways in which you can try and, uh, you know, block those senses in manner that uh, uh, prevents them from going and or dissuades them from eating these crops for instance. So you can perhaps introduce maybe crops that are sprayed with a certain chemical that uh, the elephant finds uh, distasteful and perhaps avoids these crops. Um, the other option is to try and see whether you can block uh, the the chemical cues that uh, crops send out. When they begin to flower for instance there is a certain odor that they send out, is there a way of masking that odor? For and uh, thereby kind of uh, you know uh, not uh, announcing or signaling the readiness of a crop you know for being consumed by elephants uh, there is also perhaps potential for using sounds and uh, people have already begun to do this you know playback calls of a predator like a tiger or a leopard and try to see how elephants can whether they can discriminate whether they uh, you know are frightened enough to avoid you know um, the calls of a predator so there are there are people who have now started uh, using playback calls of the uh, of uh, along paths where elephants used to come you know enter from the forest into cultiv- into a settlement uh, there could also be but there, there could also be a potential of using elephant calls themselves you know elephants communicate uh, through a variety of different uh, uh, sound uh, frequencies that go- and and some of the uh, real complex uh, sounds and language. There might be a kind of a structure to this that they use. Goes into infrasonics to very really low low sound frequencies that uh, humans cannot hear. Now, I think the 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 key is to really understand the context of a given infrasonic call, and uh, perhaps use that to you know playback uh, sounds that could uh, maybe the call of a must elephant, for instance, could it be played to uh, I, the infrasound of a must elephant, could it be of a musk bull? Could it um, deter a young bull coming into a crop field from keeping away? Uh, so, one ha- really has to sort of uh, uh, try these kinds of experiments before um, uh, we are convinced that something will work with a creature as intelligent as an elephant. So we wish Dr. Sukumar
0: and all the folks that are working on these solutions uh, the best of luck uh, in their future endeavors. But until now, we have been focusing mainly on these direct um, conflicts between humans and wildlife, particularly elephants. But at the same time, Dr. Sukumar's work also touches upon issues such as climate change, which represents an important indirect effect of human modifications of the environment. And so now, to end the interview, he's going to talk a little bit about how his work has shown the importance of climate change and how we might be able to use that information
2: to predict future events. You know, in the 1980s, we had a very major El Nino-driven drought. Uh, 1982 was, has been described as one of the worst uh, El Ninos of the last century. Now, what I noticed was that soon after that, elephants, uh, an entire clan of elephants, You know, an entire clan means a number of related families, uh, maybe 50 plus elephants, they left uh, 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 their original habitat in in the state of Tamil Nadu, Karnataka, in southern India, and they moved north uh, into a state into a region where they had never elephants had never been found in the last four or five hundred years. Now it was clear to me that that the trigger for this movement of a clan or dispersal of a clan from their native habitat into a, a different area, uh, 100 or 200 kilometers away, was this drought. So. Uh, something very similar happened uh, during 1986, which is again an El Nino year, which again ha- had implications for the monsoon, the monsoons failed. And this time in central India, another clan of elephants, again about 50 elephants or so, from the state of Bihar, now it is called Jharkhand, it left that state and started moving deeper and deeper into the southern part of the state of West Bengal. Um, and this is a, now when they started uh, this movement, they started, they found that the uh, uh, there were patches of forest which were degraded in the past historically, but which had now been regenerated. So they found this to be very convenient uh, uh, habitats for them to take a refuge during the daytime and raid the attractive paddy fields during the nighttime. And this is a pattern that has continued ever since then. And now this number has actually grown now from about 50 to 100 or 150. Uh, most and some of this increase at least is because of an increase in the population. These elephants are doing quite well uh, in spite of uh, you know making these long distance movements into a, another area. they are spending more and more time in these areas. Uh, the initial trigger for this was a climatic event. And what I worry is that uh, 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 that in the future, with global warming and with climate change, Uh, It is predicted that uh, climate, irrespective of uh, the nature of change, we know that temperatures are going to increase. When it comes to the monsoon, we are not very sure how the monsoon is going to change. But we know that there is going to be much greater variability in the monsoon. So you might have some years with very good rainfall and other years with very low rainfall. So if the frequency of those kinds of events increase or droughts increase, then this could actually trigger more frequent movement or dispersal of elephants out of the forest, you know, into human landscapes. Which means that the potential for more frequent and more intense conflict with people, you know, is there with climate change. And, uh, and I've been seeing that, uh, you know, I've been looking at figures of uh, humans, people being killed by elephants uh, over time, and there is a very clear relationship between the number of people being killed and, a drought and the frequency of drought, and a, or the occurrence of drought. So during drought years, there's, the, you know, there's a sudden spike in the number of people being killed. And to me, it's very clear that an adverse climate event is, uh, could set the potential for more increased conflict between elephants and people. So once again, we'd like to thank very much
0: Dr. Raman Sukumar for joining us on the Primate Cast and sharing with us uh, not only his research, but also the really important issue of human wildlife conflict and elephant conservation in India and around the world.
1: We'd also like to thank all of the other invited guests that came out for the JSAP. It was so nice hearing from everyone.
0: Yeah, it was a really cool conference in the end. And, um, you know, for me, as listeners may or may not know that, you know, animal psychology is not exactly my main area of interest or interest is the wrong word, but area of research. So it was a really great learning opportunity for me to come and see a lot of really interesting talks um, from, you know, researchers from all over the world. And uh, so for Sophie as well, this, how was it? for you, engaging your first mobile podcasting unit action, saying on location for the first time.
1: It was great, uh, I mean, I have a focus in psychology, that's my background, so it was really nice to be able to sit down with a lot of these people and ask the many, many, many questions I had that couldn't be covered during their talks.
0: Well, congratulations on a job very well done, Sophie. It was great working with you uh, on the podcast, and I say that as if it's some kind of an ending, uh, but temporarily at least it is, as you'll be off to the field very soon.
1: Yeah, I'm off to China for six months, but I hope the listeners enjoyed this coverage of the JSAP as much as I did.
0: And they'll certainly be able to tune in in the future when you're back with us again next year.
1: Yeah, stay tuned.
2: You have been listening to the Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world, brought to you by the Center for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology of the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. Visit us online at www.cicasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward news podcasts and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward theprimatecast and on Twitter at theprimatecast.